It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks, we're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, UFC 285 was spectacular. It was advertised as a huge night of fights, and I feel like it delivered in a big, big way. Two new champions were crowned. A couple of major prospects took their next step. Steps, a member of what is perhaps the UFC's next generation of stars, proved himself in a fight of the night caliber slugfest. It was a heady time, man. Uh, it inspired in me all of the crazy, mixed up feelings inside my body that I associate with a major landmark fight card. I felt spent. I felt energized. I was still thinking about it when I woke up the next morning. How about you? How did UFC 285 make you feel? Yeah, I felt like I got my money's worth out of this one, which you can't always say for every single one of these pay-per-views. Especially not when they keep raising the price. Right. They make it harder and harder to get your money's worth. But when you load it up with a whole bunch of good stuff, it turns out that sometimes what you get in the end, when you actually turn on the TV to watch the stream that you paid for totally legally and above board, is that you get a bunch of good stuff. That feels like what we got here. And then, honestly, a lot of times as soon as the fights are over, as soon as the post-fight speeches are done, I cut it off. Because it's late, I want to get to bed. This one, I was you know, texting on my phone or something, just had it kind of still going in the background and just in time to catch your man Stipe Miocic show up for just a blistering post <laughs> post event interview. And God bless poor Megan O'Leavy out there doing her best, doing the damnedest she can do to try to drag something of interest out of this man. Because you know, we just set up the next big heavyweight title fight. Going to be a big-ass deal. John Jones versus Stipe. Called him out in the cage. We got a, kind of a, a date in mind. The stage is set. So, Stipe, how do you feel? That's what they told me. And you're like, bro, <laughs> how long you been doing this? Yeah. At this point, it's intentional. You were, you were <laughs> giving interviewers nothing to work with, and you know it. And yeah. you must like it. 
Stipe Miocic, by the way, out there looking like he runs a bowling alley that is actually a front <laughs> for some gangsters in Chicago in the 1950s. Just living the dream. Uh, well, I mean, in terms of Stipe, he's always been known as money on the mic, as you know, Stipe Miocic. <laughs> Voice normally sounds like a blender full of lug nuts. Uh, I love the guy. But at the same time, it, you know, having him cut a non-promo promo about one of the bigger fights in UFC history just it proves man you can put the john jones in the heavyweight division but you can't take the heavyweight division out of the heavyweight division it's always going to be just a dumpster fire no matter what yeah i just i you know i watched that interview gave a little fist pump and just said out loud in my empty room heavyweight just <laughs> doing what it do well, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time on this show talking about John Jones, the new UFC heavyweight champion. It sounds both crazy and somehow absolutely appropriate to say that he absolutely blew the fucking doors off Cyril gone over the weekend. So, you know, that's going to garner a lot of attention. But before we get into the meat of all that, I suppose the most important question I could ask you is this. Last thing. <laughs> Was John Jones literally bleating like a yeah. goat after winning mm -hmm. the title on Saturday? Cool or not cool, in your opinion? I mean, I've, here's the problem. I like that we're doing a thing where we're, we're taking ownership of the goat conversation. We're not doing a thing like, well, I don't know. That's not for me to decide. He's saying it. He is telling yeah. you that he is the goat and he is trying to put that mantle on himself and at a moment when he has a legitimate claim to it. So I appreciate that. I'll say this. I don't know if there's a cool way to make a goat noise, man. I just don't know if that's possible. Yeah. It's not like in the animal kingdom. It's among the least cool noises. So that you got that working against you a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I would say by the incredibly low standards of the MMA post-fight interview, John Jones bleeding like a goat was actually pretty cool. Uh, one of the things that I had forgotten, what with John Jones's extended absence from the cage, is that he's kind of a nerd, right? Like yeah. he goes out yeah. there, he whips Cyril Gon's ass, and then he jumps on the mic uh, and you just remember that he's awkward and nerdy, which it's one of the more likable things about the guy, as far as I'm concerned. I will also say when he was like, can I get an oh, yeah, and then the crowd did it back to him. I feel like that was the first successful call and response in the history of <laughs> UFC post-fight interviews, because well, normally you try to get the crowd going and it's just like a flat line. Uh, John Jones, he pulled it off, though. The only other thing that consistently works is the Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Yeah. Uh, and everybody, that, and it's just, everybody wants to do it. And they want to say immediately after they've done it that they always wanted to do that. But you're right. The, the record, the track record of call and response attempts and post fight interviews is not great in MMA. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, when you run a combat sports podcast, you have to really make sure that you enunciate the T in bleating, bleating like a goat, because otherwise it sounds like bleeding. And that's, that's a different thing. That show. is. Totally Remember, thing. you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops for free every Monday afternoon in your timelines and podcast libraries. And if you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, friends, I need two things from you. First, subscribe to the show. No matter if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the other platforms, just go in there right now. 
right now while I'm talking to you and click the subscribe button. That way the podcast shows up in your feed every week and you don't forget about it. You get to listen to it. Second, if you're already a subscriber and you like what you hear, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to. That stuff really helps us defeat the insidious algorithms that only want people to listen to the fettered discourse of the corporate fat cats. And nobody wants that. If you want to really support the show, find us over on Patreon. Ben Folks and I are over there pretty much all week churning out additional MMA content. Uh, we run the Wednesday live chat where we take your questions for a full 60 minutes. We've got Thursday's Doing the Damn Thing podcast where we usually take a break from fighting and talk about pop culture. And we got Friday's Power Hour, a full extra hour of curated MMA talk to get you hyped for the weekend. We've got a patronage tier for every budget. Head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team. Again, that's patreon.com slash co-main event. We've got music this week from our guy, Simeo, aka co-main event podcast listener, Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more at soundcloud.com slash Simeo. That's S-E-E-M-I-O. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, John Jones can do all things through Christ who strengthens him up to and including making the former UFC interim heavyweight champion look like a white belt on the first day of jujitsu class. And in round number two, it seems like a potential super fight between John Jones and Francis Ngannou only got more super and more interesting on Saturday, but big Fran is still in the wind and Dana White says he'll never be back. Does John Jones need that fight? Does Francis? Shouldn't we do it for the culture? And in round number three, hey, speaking of jujitsu, Alexa Grasso, anyone? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our guy, Darkwing Duck. Nice. He writes, Jamie Pickett's manager says they'll be appealing his loss to Bo Nickel because of... (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, you're already laughing. Because of a low blow, they say, led straight to the takedown and arm triangle choke. Of course, this appeal won't go anywhere, and we all agree that Bo Nickel is one of the best prospects we've seen in MMA for a long time. But do you agree that his UFC debut win is tainted by what looked like a blatant shot to the beanbag? Is this... Is this fair play Dundasso or something else? Now, I will say this, Ben. I guess I shouldn't be, but I was astonished on Saturday night the degree to which people were willing to totally no-sell the nut shot from Bo Nickel. Uh, You expect that kind of stuff, I guess, from the UFC broadcast team because we have a lot of years of them ignoring the obvious and just carrying on with their talking points. But this was industry-wide, man. You look on Twitter and it was just tweet after tweet after tweet from respected voices in the industry just being like, great win for Bo Nickel. Went out there and blew the doors off Jamie Pickett. He's looking like he's going to live up to the hype. I was like, did you not see the nut shot? Did you not see the blatant low blow that J- or that Bo Nickel did the instant before he took Jamie Pickett down and choked him out with an arm triangle choke? So, I mean, it just reinforces what I've always been saying about Dundasso, man. Always cheat in an Mm -hmm. MMA fight because you'll probably suffer no consequences. And if you're a highly touted prospect like Bo Nickel, we'll probably just pretend like we didn't even see it. We'll all just be like, I don't know, man, we're going to pull a Scott Coke, Scotty Coke, Scott Coker. I'll check the tape and I'll get back to you next week is what we're all saying. I mean, 
I, I noticed it too, especially as they were talking through the replay. Not only not mentioning the actual groin shot, but you can see in Jamie Pickett's face a, a look of agony as yeah. in the aftermath. And they didn't even mention it. Just didn't even think about, hey, why is he wincing in pain before he is even taken down here? What might have preceded that? And I think some of it is just because it fits with the narrative that we expected going into this fight. Bo Nickel was a goddamn 15-to-1 favorite. Yes, he was. 15-to-1. So everybody expected him to come in here, run through this guy. So when they see him come in here, run through this guy, they go, all right, I don't need to look for any deeper explanation as to why that happened. That's exactly what was supposed to happen. It's also a little bit why when you know Joe Rogan is saying the hype is real afterwards, and it's like, I mean, yeah, I agree that that guy looks like he's good. He's good. He's going to continue to be good and get better. And uh, we should expect big things from him. But when you put the guy in a fight where he's a 15 to 1 favorite, that's what's supposed to happen is what, what we saw there. So I think that that's part of it. I don't know if I would go so far as to say the win was tainted because of it. I mean, I'll, I'll pull a little bit of a Gus Johnson on you and say these things happen sometimes in MMA. Uh, I don't think Bo Nickel was trying to knee him in the groin or anything. I mean, he locked up that body lock. I think he was shooting that knee, trying to go up the middle, hit him in the gut, give him something to think about before you launch into the takedown. But can't we just say we probably thought we were going to get there one way or another? And also, we've seen... We've seen more egregious cases, honestly, where somebody gets thumbed in the eye or hit in the groin or something right before a finishing sequence. And if the ref doesn't see it, if the ref just lets it go, then you're kind of screwed when it comes to the appeal. Because you just you the the very limited things that the rules in Nevada say you can appeal based on, the ref missing a foul is not one of them. Like it just yeah. It's not in the rules that that will get you your your fight overturned. Right. No, they got no chance of overturning this thing. But I mean, just because the guy's a big favorite and we all knew the fight was going to end that way doesn't mean he can just go out there and cheat. Like, that's a dangerous precedent yeah. as well. No, he can. Actually, he can. Turns out. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like uh, that skit and I think you should leave where the guy brings a Johnny Carson impersonator <laughs> he, to the party and he's like, he can hit at this Bo price Nickel point. Bo Nickel can knee in the groin. Yeah. Yeah. At this price point, he can knee in the groin. All right, the next question this week comes to us from The Major Rager, who writes, I want to hear Ben say, Shavkat Rachmanov, that boy good, one more time, because that boy good discourse. Ben, give it to him. That boy good, Chad. I'm telling you. My he man Shavkat, yeah. that boy good. Shavkat, that boy good, Rachmanov. Yep. 100% straight out of Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan stand up, uh, and going to come in here with his own signature headwear. He saw how well that worked out for Habib. He's he going to give you one. He's going to make sure everybody sees him out here wearing his thing. Honestly, this was a a informative fight for us about yeah. Shavkat, I feel. For sure. Because he got tested in it. He went through some stuff in it. He, uh, you know at times looks like he was maybe not given Jeff Neal's boxing the respect that he needed to. And you were like, oh man, are you going to fuck around and get knocked out just because you don't seem worried enough about getting knocked out, but also just showed that he's tough as hell. And he has that sort of aura about him where 
even when he's fighting and it's not going exactly to plan or the other guy is having some good moments, he always seems to be fighting like he already knows he's going to win. Yeah. And this is just a little bit of a blip on the path to that. But don't yeah. worry. We're eventually you will succumb. And he snatches up that that standing rear naked to finish it. And he's just like and it shows you that the guy's got some resiliency that even if he's in a fight where you know somebody's firing back and they're tagging him, he doesn't shrink from those moments and he's just got such a good all-around game and it seems like he still has room to get better. The boy good. Yeah, that boy good. I saw the choke referred to on Twitter by someone as the bouncer choke, which I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, no that that fits. Uh, you know, that there's nothing not to like about Shavkat Rachmanov at this point. Like he's going to choke you unconscious, drop you on the mat like a sack of potatoes, go put on his wolfskin hat and then come back over and shake your hand and be like, you did good. Good job. You did good. <laughs> uh, we also saw him tested, like you said, in this fight, maybe something we hadn't necessarily seen up to this point in his UFC career. He took some heavy shots from a guy whose nickname is literally hands of steel with Z with a Z hands and uh, didn't seem that bothered by it for the most part. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up here is this fight won fight of the night. They both got $50,000 bonus, despite the fact that Jeff Neal missed weight by five yeah. pounds. Now, I'm never going to sit here and tell you pay a fighter less money. Always pay a fighter more money. But historically in the UFC, you're not supposed to be eligible for a bonus if you miss weight like that. And... Again, give give him his money. Pay Jeff Neal a bunch of money so he doesn't have to keep being a waiter or whatever it is he probably does on the side. Uh, but at the same time, isn't this just an example of like, there really are no rules. Uh, we've got some precedent, but whatever, the, the bald guy in the all black sweater with the black shirt under it and the black pants and the black shoes, whatever he feels at the end of the night, that's what that's what, what the rule is. That's what goes. Yeah. I mean, we are at the whim of an ultra-rich megalomaniac, so we have to make our peace with that. But here's one where, yeah, I can't get upset about it, because even as I was watching this fight and I was going, man, this feels like fight of the night, but Jeff Neal, it's a considerable weight miss. And yet, I'm okay with saying, like, all right, this time... The guy, like, normally you're not supposed to, but you did such a good job. You did such a fight of the night that you still get the money anyway. Uh, Because I was watching the thing and just, like, the back and forth, the the ebbs and the flows of this fight, that was a good-ass fight, man. Yeah, it was. It was the fight of the night for sure. There's no real uh, question about that. Uh, Speaking of post-fight awards, I see that Bo Nickel also got a $50,000 performance of the night bonus, which is $25,000 for each one of Jamie Pickett's balls. So (laughs) there is that. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from Freddie Fruit Loop, who says, where do you see DDP's ceiling after his TKO win over Derek Brunson? Yes, he's on a nice run and jacked, but I wonder how he fares against more technical opponents or someone just as big as him, a.k.a. Snacks Costa or Smiley himself, Roman Delizze. Uh This was DDP. Dricus Duplicis, something like that. Yep. That we mm-hmm. there's a reason why we call him DDP. He defeated Derek Brunson via TKO stoppage. Derek Brunson's corner stopped it. Uh the second round. This is Derek Brunson uh a week or two after bragging about how he's not gonna pay as much child support anymore. Yeah. Going out there and getting TKO'd by DDP. He he appeared to like almost announce his retirement after this. Yeah. Well, 
As far as the question about DDP himself, in both this fight and the Darren Till fight, even though he won both fights, you can see that, you know, it's not as if there's no room for improvement in DDP's game. There's some stuff, but it's also like, it's fun to watch in a way because, you know, he's out there, he's, he's doing some stuff. He's making stuff happen. Uh, there's There are definitely some holes in the game that different people might exploit. I don't expect this to be a guy who wins them all, but I expect him the, the fights that he's in to end up mostly pretty fun. And so far, that's what we've done. I mean, I think that he is fortunate in a way to be in this division where, you know, we, we need some fun guys. We need some fun guys to show up and do some stuff. I don't know if I see a title shot coming up right away or anything, but I'm glad to have him at 185. Let's say that. You telling me it's a high risk, high reward fighting style? Kind of. Also, just that they're going to be, he's not going to dominate the entire fight. Let's say that. He, 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 even when he wins in the end, as he did here, he's going to have some moments where you're like, especially if you were somebody who out there put money down on DDP, there were going to be moments in any of those fights where you're going to be like, uh Oh, I might have made an error. I might have made a financial error, but you're going to sweat it out. And in the end, he's going to win. Maybe. Yeah. I'm into it. Uh, next question this week comes to us from YSL Woody. So. I'm not totally sure what that means. He actually fired off a number of very short questions in his email, most of which we will talk about at other points. Is this, is this a streamer? It sounds like a streamer. YSL Woody doesn't sound like somebody who would fight on a Jake Paul undercard. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's true. The last question he asks here says, "Is Garbrandt finished?" And lastly, that Julian Marquez fellow has gone zero and two with two KOs since striking out with Miley Cyrus. Uh, Cody Garbrandt got a, got a win over the weekend, but maybe it didn't look as great as he used to, as overwhelming as he used to. Maybe he didn't look like he's championship level anymore with this unanimous decision win over Trevin Jones. I know. Garbrandt has recently switched camps, so he's down there at Extreme Couture now in Las Vegas. He snapped a two-fight losing streak here. He's 2-2 two and two in his last four fights. I don't know. Is Garbrandt finished? I'm not sure I totally, uh, totally understand where we're coming from with that. Maybe finished as a top contender is what we mean. Well, one thing I've learned just in the last couple seconds is that YSL Woody apparently has been snitching. Oh, no. What does that mean? Uh, he was caught snitching on Young Thug. Oh, no. Yeah. So he writes this from hiding, then, from witness <laughs> protection. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I, I can't get mad at what Cody Garbrandt went out there and did because that man needed a win here. You know? Yeah. He. It would have been nice for him to entertain us, but we can't sit around here on Al Gore's internet and say shit like, man, Cody Garbrandt's problem is that he doesn't he forgot how to fight smart. He lets his ego get the best of him. Once he gets hit in the face, he plants his feet and throws back, and then he his chin can't handle those kind of firefights and he gets knocked out, even though he is technically and athletically really good. Uh he needs to fix that problem. And then when he goes out there and he fights smart and he wins a decision, we go, that shit was boring. Cody Garbrandt is trash now. No man, he needed to win. He needed to not stand there and get knocked out. 
I totally understand that. And I'm sure he needed it just for his own confidence and to, to put a little distance between him and some of those losses and just make himself feel like, okay, I'm not in the hot seat so much anymore. And then maybe I can relax a little bit more in future fights and, and give you more of a show. But I'm not going to get mad at the guy. He, he needed a win way more than he needed for us to be super impressed with that fight. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, Ben, but it is better to win these fights than lose G- them. Generally better, yes. Trevin Jones did come into this thing on the heels of a three-fight losing streak, so Cody Garbrandt did extend that to a four-fight losing streak. But at the same time, I was uh, I was giving Cody Garbrandt more credit than he perhaps deserves when I say he snapped a two-fight losing streak. He was actually one and five in his last six heading into this fight. So you're right. Better to win this one by somewhat lackluster unanimous decision than drop another one, another one in a row, which uh, maybe you'd be looking for work if that was the case for Cody Garbs. Next question this week comes to us from Dell, who writes, eight out of 12 champions have zero title defenses inside the UFC right now. Mahachev, Volkanovski, Sterling, and Nunez at featherweight are the only ones with at least a single title defense right now. Seeing belts change hands is always fun, but is having such brand new champions good for the sport? Or does a long reigning champion bring an air of credibility that perhaps the UFC is currently lacking? Then, Dell says, love you both equally, but I read two books that Chad wrote and none from Ben Folks. So what's really going on with that, you okay. bum? Now I Called see why you, you wanted a to... bum. Wow. I, I wow, get now why stings. you wanted to read this question. That's that it all checks out now. It checks every box dots. for me because it's not only did he call you a bum, but it's an interesting conversation here to have for a couple minutes about <laughs> what's going on with these UFC champions. I, I'm not totally sure what side of the coin I come down on on this one because I think generally people do like a dominant champion. Uh, sometimes that's not true as true in the UFC as perhaps it is in boxing or some of the other sports, but you know, I do think it's good to have a dominant champion who, who you can go out there and set your watch by them defending the title a couple of times a year. But it's also interesting and exciting to see this turnover, especially at a time, you know, when they felt like the UFC was a little bit out of crossroads with the kind of programming that it was offering and exactly what its business model is right now for what it wants to offer to fans. So I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to have sort of a new wave of championship contenders and people who are going to hold the title. And especially with John Jones, uh, it makes heavyweight feel very exciting and more exciting than it has felt in a while to have him go up there and claim that championship. But for the most part, I guess I would argue maybe it doesn't make that big of a difference, especially not to the UFC and its bottom line at this point. But I can see the appeal of of both sides of the coin, I guess. Yeah, I definitely don't think it makes a difference to the UFC's bottom line. But as for how fans feel about it, I think we like a dominant champion until we don't, until we get bored with it. And especially until we get to a stage where we're going, okay, they're just picking whoever's next on the list who hasn't had a shot yet and giving that person a shot. And it gets harder and harder to to sell those fights, I think, and to get people excited about them. But I also think that if you go too hard in the other direction where, like we've seen in some divisions at times, everybody gets to have a cup of coffee with the belt and nobody defends it. It's everybody wins it and then loses it and their first attempt to defend it. It does create a little bit of a 
feeling of impermanence to the title and and that it's just being passed around. And I also think that as much as I enjoy seeing John Jones go up there in heavyweight and, and win a belt in that weight class, it does bother me when we don't get a resolution, like we don't have a lineal champ anymore. Because once you let Francis Ngannou walk as champion then the line is kind of broken there. You're starting yeah. over. You're just sort of naming somebody heavyweight champion. You're saying, these two guys, neither of whom are champion, are going to fight, and then that person will be the champion. Like That does undercut the value of it a little bit. What the UFC has going for him in that case is that the guy who steps in here and wins it is already John fucking Jones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, next question, we'll squeeze one more here. Squeeze in one more here from Dean Draper, who writes... All right, dudes, I'm watching the fights on replay Sunday afternoon in the UK, drinking, of course. Herb, Herb, meaning Herb Dean, has just been told about the mouthpiece on the floor in the Neil versus Rachmanov bout. Now, I think Dean Draper is emailing this to us in real time as he watches. Should the ref have an earpiece and there be another ref watching the monitor with commentary to relay a message in case he misses something in the thick of the action that is so obvious when you're watching the TV feed? Uh, Now, I believe there are some officials at ringside, but they don't have access to the referee in this kind of ongoing way. This is an interesting idea. Now, you know, over in Pride during those years, those referees did wear earpieces and it has always been sort of the, the... mythology of pride that essentially there was a person from the yakuza sitting in the gorilla position as we call it in pro wrestling essentially being like stand them up yeah i've been down there too long stand them up yellow card we got to save some money here so let's find somebody who knows what the truth is for this but i actually don't hate the idea of having another set of eyes outside the cage to be like hey one of these guys mouthpiece fell out it's on the canvas and you just stepped on it or (laughs) for that matter to be like hey i think bo nickel just need this guy right in the pills yeah let's 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 take a look at this that was going to be my point is that it's probably more valuable if they can be like hey the the guy was really just poked in the eye just now you can step in there and take a look or that cut was caused by uh clash of heads, something like that, that that they might need to know right then because if they don't do anything, the fight proceeds, and if it ends a couple seconds later or like an exchange of punches or two later when somebody's still wounded from a foul, then at that point you won't be able to do anything and you'll just have to go with that result. And so I think that it could be useful for that. I also think we we need to be careful we're not throwing too much at some of these referees because it's already they they better be paying real close attention you don't want to have somebody in their ear distracting them like you want to make sure that we're only using it when it is absolutely necessary and that they don't have to keep up with just like a kind of a running chatter uh, because the last thing you need is herb dean distracted by big dan pointing out a hot blonde in the in the front row uh, when somebody gets dropped and the the Dan Henderson bomb is poised over their head and it's decision time, you know? Yeah, I'd like to think that we could maintain radio silence until <laughs> we needed somebody on the mic. We're not just going to be up there 
chatting about whether or not we've watched the latest releases and whatnot. So uh, I don't know. I think it's an idea that worth exploring. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us right now. We are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, Ben, I was surprised. I think everybody was surprised how effortlessly John Jones went out there and beat Cyril Gone. Even if you picked him to win, I don't think anybody thought it was going to go down quite like that. It seemed the only person who wasn't surprised was John Jones. He had talked during fight week that this would be easy for him, that this would be a mismatch, that people would be astonished at how easy it was for him to beat Cyril Ghosn. And you got to say, at this point, he was right. Because he went out there and won this fight in two minutes and four seconds, got the trip takedown, sort of a schoolyard bully takedown yeah. more than anything else. And Cyril Gaon appeared to have nothing, no resistance. As soon as John Jones stepped over and got that mount position against the fence, you knew that Gaon was in trouble. And yet, from the outside, it didn't necessarily look like he was in that much trouble at the time. But John Jones, with the longest arms in the UFC or whatever, manages to reach in there, you know, slip the hands at least under the neck uh, and get the tap out. So here you got John Jones now, UFC heavyweight champion. Were you surprised with how easy this one went down? Was I surprised, Chad? Uh, let me invite you to check the record, bud. And remember, when we were sitting here making our predictions for this fight last week, do you remember what I said? I'll t- but first, before I tell you what I said, let me tell you, what you said. <laughs> no, I'm on the record, and I have I have already gone out on Twitter and posted an update that that was not correct. That the thing that I thought was going to happen was not correct. You thought John Jones was going to go out there and get himself knocked out, trading strikes on the feet with Cyril gone early on in the fight. What I said was that I thought John Jones was going to go in there, get a takedown right away, and what I said was finish it early with elbows basically through ground and pound so i was wrong there but you will definitely recall that i said i don't think we hear the words round two i think john jones gets it done in the first uh just take down and then beats him and that's pretty much exactly what happened i was surprised how easy he it was for him to take him down it wasn't like he had to chain together takedown techniques or anything too creative. It just closed the distance, got to the body lock, and then boom, you're going down, big fella. And then once he was there, Cyril Gaon was just kind of lost and Jones was all over him. Uh, I also got to say, I started feeling a lot better about that pick 
when I saw the big homie Greg Jackson show up in John Jones's corner right before the fight because we haven't seen Greg Jackson in a while. It feels yeah. like, yeah, no, and we did not know entirely what the state of of John Jones's own team was. You know, since he had that break with Mike Winklejohn, we're entirely sure. And then you see Greg Jackson and Mike. Okay, so at least somebody has helped him prepare a game plan here. Uh, but I was a little bit surprised that he did not try to make grounded pound part of his strategy at all. He just, it was as soon as he got him down, it was advanced position, look for submission. And that was kind of it. And that was really all he needed. It was, Shogun was kind of defending that choke at first, but then when he, when he tried to move and adjust and he left his neck exposed and, and as soon as John Jones got under the chin, his game over. Yeah. Uh, you're right. It was kind of like the glass broke and Greg Jackson came stomping out to the stone cold Steve Austin music. Of course, Greg Jackson would never do that because he is an understated gentleman. But that's kind of how I felt when I saw him out there with with John Jones. Apparently, they buried the hatchet and were able to get it back together for the heavyweight title fight. Uh, Brandon Gibson also still in his camp, his longtime striking coach and kind of best buddy, I think, in this sport. But it was good to see those guys. Um I guess I'll ask you this before we get into all the John Jones stuff. What can be said of Cyril Gaon, right? Here's a guy who has known since at least January of 2022 when he lost to Francis Ngannou that defensive wrestling was the major hole in his game. And I don't know if it's unfair to really criticize him for this because sometimes defensive wrestling can be one of the more difficult holes in your game to close up. But yeah. at the same time, and also, I'll just say, you're out there with John Jones, right? Yeah. So let's not overlook that. But at the same time, it kind of looked like he had nothing. Like He was just sort of like, oh, this guy's going to try to take me down like the last guy did, huh? Well, okay. And then it was then it was over. It was done. I agree with you that he should have known, and I think probably did know, that after that Francis Ngannou fight, the blueprint is out. And people who are going to fight Cyril Gaon are going to test his takedown defense until he proves that he has fixed it. And I'm sure that he did a lot of work on it, but I also agree that historically, if you look, if you've got a big glaring weakness in that category, that's not super easy to fix right away. Like name somebody where you thought like, okay, in one fight, their wrestling was absolute shit. They were a zero on the wrestling meter on the UFC game or whatever. And then in the next fight, boom, just sprawling like mad and shutting down all the takedown attempts. Like it just doesn't typically happen that way. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, he said afterwards how he felt really upset with himself for giving up the choke there. And they felt like he had prepared for some of these situations and that he, he, he knew, but he knew better and he just did not do better. And so uh, sure that can happen. Um, but I don't think there was ever a scenario in which if John Jones was really committed to getting Cyril gone to the mat, that Cyril gone was just going to shut them all down. And yeah. the the problem was going to be, what do you do when he does get you down that you, you know, and it's a tough situation to deal with because if you do get too defensive like I don't want to give up a submission I don't want to be trying to scramble up and give the guy an opportunity to advance on me if you're just kind of 
shelling up there and staying, well, then he's going to post up and down come the elbows. And that yeah. man can really do damage with those elbows. Um, but if you try to think like, okay, as soon as I hit the mat, I'm trying to scramble, I'm trying to get to the fence, I'm trying to get up, then you give him those openings that he exploited there. So it, it's a tough one. It's maybe why some smart people picked John Jones in the first round. It was sort of a situation where if he takes you down, you'll do fucking nothing. As it turned out, that's what the answer was. Uh, this this looked like a little bit of a return to the old school John Jones, which was one of the topics of conversation heading into this. You know, he had Brandon Gibson, he had Greg Jackson back, and he goes out there and he looks kind of as devastating and as quick a finisher as he had been early on in his light heavyweight career. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that he looked nervous when he was walking out for this fight, which you don't see John Jones look all that nervous you know when he's heading out there to have a mixed martial arts fight stripped to the waist and fight another human being in the cage and i don't know if it was the move up to heavyweight i don't know if it was the extended period away from the cage but it seemed like this did get him jazzed again man it did kind of get his competitive juices flowing again maybe lit a fire under him again he said in the post fight interview after it was over he felt a little goofy in the stand-up until he he got his bearings there but i don't know man maybe you do have a re-energized john jones up here at heavyweight which that's the dude who could go on a run i think yeah you're right and it felt you know watching that moment when he walks out and is walking out to you know the the, the champ is here thing even though we're, mm-hmm. we're fighting for a vacant title and seeing him watch walk out and he's saying like, oh, yeah. oh And it felt like he's talking to himself there. You know, he's saying like, OK, here you are back in this moment. And one of the things that we always used to see that was different with John Jones is how when he would walk out, you could feel where he was kind of like happy and excited to be there. Like, OK, you get to watch me do this thing now. And here is the one place where my life, I have it together and it all makes sense right here on Saturday night in the spotlight. And you're right that it did seem like that was tinged with a little more nervousness and a little more like, Oh yeah, here's that feeling again. And it's been a while, you know? Yeah. And now that John Jones has won the UFC heavyweight title, I don't know if we're all sitting around nervous waiting for the next headline, but it kind of feels like maybe we should be. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully he moves on and is able to fight again and has a successful career at heavyweight. One thing I will say, you can't take anything away from the guy. He did exactly what you're supposed to do. He went out there. He looked completely devastating, flawless victory, uh, dispatched Cyril gone in a little bit over a minute, two minutes. Sometimes when you win like that, and this reminds me a little bit of Ronda Rousey, where she was beating everybody so thoroughly with her judo takedowns and submission ability that she was at it a long time before someone was able to exploit her weaknesses. And then when someone did, namely Holly Holm and then Amanda Nunes, we were like, oh, okay, yes, that's that that's a pretty glaring weakness, a pretty big hole in the game. We did not actually see John Jones much at heavyweight as a heavyweight, I guess, in this fight because he did one thing and he won it. We still don't know totally how he'll will, how he'll fare, do we, against someone that he can't beat that easily? There's still a lot of questions, I guess is what I'm saying, about how he will do in this weight class. Yeah, I think especially because when he shows up for fight week here and starts taking his shirt off, we go, hmm. Yeah, man on the street build. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a little bit of that, uh, like, 
cannonball gut kind of situation. It looks, I mean, it looks solid. Looks like he's not carrying around a ton of fat or anything, but also doesn't look quite as chiseled out of stone as he used to. And so I did start to wonder what is heavyweight John Jones really going to look like. And you're right that we did not get a ton of tape on that one. Yeah. You know, we still have a lot of questions, but honestly, that probably only helps you get people excited for the Stipe fight because yeah. on paper, you know, John Jones versus like a 43 year old Stipe or however old he is who hasn't fought in a while and is coming back after, you know, after it seemed transitioning more and more into a regular life as a fireman, it seems like John Jones should win that one. Yeah. But at least then you got a, a guy who is a natural heavyweight, used to that heavyweight life, who can wrestle. So how does that change things? I don't know. Like, I, it will be interesting uh, to see how uh, fight odds and everything shape up for that one. And, and as we get closer, uh, because you're right, it's not like we came away being like, well, we saw everything that the new John Jones has to offer. We saw one thing, but it's a yeah. damn good thing. Uh, but it was especially tailored to work against that particular opponent. Right. Maybe we should have just kept John Jones fat and happy this whole time. Maybe that was the problem. Maybe now that he's up there at heavyweight, he's just, he's loving life. He can go ahead and uh, live up to his full potential. Yeah. But I mean, like you said, don't, don't act like the Vegas PD wasn't on the radios <laughs> that night being like, all right, anybody, if you see John Jones out in these streets, send out an alert so that we can all keep our heads on a swivel. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about the Stipe Miocic matchup coming up in round number two. Before we get there, though, uh, we'll do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I thought we were going to have ourselves just a classic MMA moment when John Jones walks out to the cage, big moment, starts to climb the steps into the octagon, and they tell him, wait, hold up. What's with all that tape on your foot, man? And then... We get into a whole thing about the fucking tape on John Jones's foot. <laughs> He's got tape on his foot, tape on his toe. You'll remember his toe horribly disfigured in that fight with Chael Sonnen. He says he has taped his toe ever since then, and it seemed like it was going to be an issue. They made him cut part of it off. Here's his quote, though, afterwards. Uh, so... Well, first he says that he had to use a different tape for this fight. He says, I usually use a certain brand of tape. I'll give them a shout out. War tape. I feel like it's just a lot stickier. I used the UFC's tape tonight, and as soon as my body started to sweat, the tape was sliding all over the place. So I made almost like a little cast around my toe that linked down to the middle of my foot so that the tape wouldn't slide off my toes. And when I got out there, the commission was like, you can't tape your feet. And I'm like, dude, I've always taped my feet. So they get into it. Uh, you know, it seems like it's going to be a whole thing. John Jones says this about it. I'm not going to compete if I can't tape my toes. I just won't do it. I want everyone to know that in the future. So thank God we didn't have a disaster out there tonight. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I, I mean, please, that is the only weird shit MMA has not yet had. Is a situation where a fighter walks out, they try to take the tape off his toe, and he says, you know what, fuck you, I'm not going in there. <laughs> what are you going to do then, Nevada State Athletic Commission? You can tell everybody, go home, fights off. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Yeah. You're not going to wow. do shit. You know what? Like, that's the point, though, in all, in all seriousness, that it helps to be a veteran and have a veteran corner with you because you could see how that would fuck with you a little bit if that was like your first UFC fight and you were climbing in the cage and they were like oh hey wait a second stand here for another two minutes while we figure out 
what we're going to do about the tape. Whereas, as you could see in the result of the fight, didn't necessarily mess with the mental of John Jones. So yeah. at least we got that. Ben, you, you probably saw Conor McGregor and Jake Gyllenhaal. We're all over the place at UFC 285, right? There's out there filming scenes for the the new Roadhouse reboot that they're both in. And, you know, Connor is also in town, I think, filming that new season of Tough right now. Uh, I've already been on the record with my feelings about the whole idea of this Roadhouse remake. You can't improve on perfection, man. I don't, I don't see why you would even try. Uh, but here you got Connor McGregor roaming around free showing up at the weigh-ins filming tough ringside with Hall during the fights all this less than two months after he was accused of assaulting a woman on his yacht allegedly physically attacking her to the point where she jumped off the boat into the sea and got picked up by the coast guard that woman by the way, well, I think I don't think the part that she got picked up by the okay. Coast Guard is alleged. I think that that part has been conclusively proven. Uh, she had a brick thrown through her window at her house. Someone went there and set her car on fire. Huh. Harassment to the point that she eventually dropped the official criminal complaint against Conor McGregor. But this is at least the third woman who has credibly accused Conor McGregor of assault, sexual and otherwise, which, by the way, is a statistical impossibility that three unrelated women would all make false claims against him, not to mention the other assaults and pettier crimes that he has been accused of and has committed over the years. He was charged with exposing himself in a bar fairly recently. Remember that? Dana White uh, just kind of laughed that one off and things get crazy when you're out with Conor McGregor, he said. <laughs> I guess we should expect this stuff from MMA, right? That we're going to let Conor McGregor keep showing up and keep doing his thing and honoring him without ever really bringing any of this stuff up. But Hollywood, Ben, do you remember that Hollywood, tell me if you remember this, Ben, recently had an alleged reckoning about sexual assault and bad guys in general in that industry? No, you I remember saw a headline. That? I saw a headline yeah. about that, I think, yeah. It got, it got a little bit of media attention there a year mm-hmm. or two ago. It was kind of a big deal. Remember that? Remember yeah. that? And really, Hollywood and Jake Gyllenhaal and all of the people involved in this terrible Roadhouse movie, we're just going to ignore that. We're just going to keep going along, showing up at the UFC, sitting next to the guy, smiling like we're best friends. And remember... This latest assault allegation happened during this Roadhouse stuff, man, or at least in between the time that Conor McGregor was announced to be in the Roadhouse movie, and maybe they had already filmed it, maybe not, I don't know, but we're just gonna let Conor McGregor hang out, smoking and joking like everything's cool being an actor? You fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Chad, here's the situation as we understand it at heavyweight. The champion walked away with the belt, never lost it in the cage. So we said, you know what? He's not the champion anymore. We're going to crown a new champion. John Jones shows up, walks through Cyril Ghosn. He's now the UFC heavyweight champion. He's going to fight the former UFC heavyweight champion and the longest ever to consistently, uh, consecutively defend the heavyweight title uh, record holder, Stipe Miocic. We're going to do that in midsummer. And we got ourselves a little bit of a, a path forward. Meanwhile, the biggest homie, Francis Ngannou, still outside the UFC, thinking about his options in boxing. Uh, from what we understand, taking regular meetings with the likes of Bellator, PFL, uh, probably has a, a U-up text from BKFC every once in a while come through on his phone, thinking about his next steps. How do you feel about where we are right now? Are you ready to say like, all right, heavyweight is back on track. It's an exciting division again. Or do you feel like, you know what? That missing Francis Ngannou piece feels even more missing after seeing John Jones just blaze right through Cyril Ghosn. Yeah, it definitely feels cool to have John Jones as heavyweight champion. It feels almost like he has fulfilled his destiny in a way, right? Of the longtime light heavyweight champion who dominated that division moving up and now proving in some ways his greatness uh, all over again with this victory over Cyril Ghosn. And I think a potential fight between Francis Ngannou and John Jones only got bigger and more interesting over the weekend because if you thought John Jones was going to beat Francis Ngannou in the first place, well, now you have more, a little bit more cannon fodder to load up at the big guy and you know shoot over his broad side there because John Jones looks so good against Cyril Ghosn. And if you thought Francis Ngannou would beat John Jones, well, now... I think you got a thing that makes you go, hmm, from watching this fight against Cyril Ghosn. And so, by all rights, I feel like Francis Ngannou's stock only should have gone up this weekend. Because now, I think people would want to see that fight even more than before. And in a, in a sane world, the UFC would be willing to pay even more to bring Francis Ngannou back to actually have this fight against John Jones. Now, obviously, we live in an insane world where the UFC isn't going to do that. And in fact, wasn't it interesting to see Dana White come out and say, we tried to make that fight for three years, and essentially Francis Ngannou didn't want it. So that fight is dead. He will never be back in the octagon. And Francis Ngannou tweeted a video of Dana White at UFC 260 appearing in front of the media where Dana White said, if I saw that fight, meaning a big time Francis Ngannou win, if I were John Jones, I'd be thinking about heading down to 185. Now, isn't it interesting how Dana White changes what he says and what he feels depending on who he is in a contract negotiation with or who he has had a contentious contract negotiation with. So, you know, Francis Ngannou's value, in my opinion, only should have gone up. And the fact that that is probably not true, or at least that Dana White seems like he is doing his best to make that not true, is just another sad commentary, frankly, on the sport. Do you remember those you might be a redneck if jokes that Jeff Foxworthy used to do? We could do one for Dana White along the lines of, you might be lying too much if... 
People don't even need to engage with your arguments. They can just post a video of you saying a completely different thing at a different time. Yeah. Like they don't even need to say, you know what? I think this guy's misrepresenting the facts. Let me explain why they can just post a video of you. You're on video doing it enough that it's a problem. And we know who Dana White is at this point and what he does. So we can't really be surprised. And this is the, the classic Dana White playbook where if somebody wants more money, flip the page. It says they don't really want to fight. And that's what we was doing about John Jones when Francis Ngannou was the one saying like, all right, John Jones says he's going to come up to heavyweight, have him come up here, make that fight. John Jones was saying, you recall, when he immediately, when he first announced his move to heavyweight was the reason he was doing it was for bigger paydays that he had, he felt like he had been told by the UFC. That's how you get into the next level. Like that you're kind of capped at what you can earn right now to get to a next level. You need to go to heavyweight, do a super fight. And he was like, okay, I'm ready to do that. Where's the money for that? And they were like, uh, we don't know what you're talking about. And so that was the dispute at first. And then the the line of reasoning in public that Dana White would trot out was this negotiation over money stuff is just a smokescreen. He's he doesn't really want that fight. He is scared to fight Francis Ngannou, and so now we're gonna flip it and be like Francis is the one who's scared. You know who I'm really disappointed in this is John Jones. Yeah, because he shows up at the press conference afterwards. He went from. A guy, Mike Bad to the Bone, pointed out on Twitter, in like five weeks' time or something, he went from, I'm proud of Francis for standing up for himself, for, for knowing his worth, and, and being willing to take a stand against the UFC, to Francis, in his words, is a pussy. Doesn't want that fight. And you're just like, come on, man. How, you you Are you going to do this? You're going to play right into their hands? Especially when it seemed like earlier you had a read on the situation you had an accurate read on the situation and you abandoned that just i guess for ego to talk shit about francis Ngannou. now he's gone and it's just like it, you you could do better there you could yeah. just be like hey i wanted that fight i think the fans won the fight i'm disappointed that we couldn't get it made but i understand what the guy was the guy's reasoning yeah. you know because I- it, that was your reasoning not too long ago Right. I saw John Nash uh, tweeted a video this week. John Nash, by the way, we had him on one of our Patreon shows last week. Very informative. Very good. Tweeted a video where basically John Jones is asked about getting this new big contract from the UFC. And basically what he says is, well, my uh, stick-to-itiveness paid off. My perseverance paid off the fact that I had this contract negotiation. And then the UFC finally came around to my way of thinking, no, man. They locked you up in a high dollar long-term deal so you couldn't leave and fight Francis Ngannou. Like, they needed you, man. They had to yeah. lock you down because Francis Ngannou left. He doesn't say anything about that. All he says is, well, you know, I stuck to my guns and I waited three years or whatever and they finally gave me what I wanted. Just like, come on, man. But at this point, it seems like the most likely scenario is that we don't get to see that fight. And as I've said in the past, Francis Ngannou's next fight should be the thing that pays him the most money for one fight, whatever that is. And it seems like that's going to be in boxing. He should absolutely take a boxing fight if he can make more money doing that than he can in the UFC, win, lose, or draw. I think that it's uh, worth it for him to do that. 
like I said, in a sane world, he could have that fight and then come back and sign a high dollar contract with the UFC and come in and fight John Jones. But at this point, the most likely outcome seems that it'll be that Francis Ngannou goes to fight somewhere else, that Francis Ngannou is beating people up in Bellator or the PFL, wherever it is, and maybe John Jones has an extended run as UFC heavyweight champion, and we don't get to see that fight, at least not with the two guys in anything approaching their primes, which feels a little bit like a return to the pride days when you had you know, all these guys over in Japan who seemed great. They didn't really get to fight the guys from the UFC with some notable exceptions, except for after they were kind of out of their prime. How big a shadow do you think that that casts? If we never get to see that, let's say John Jones defends the UFC heavyweight title 10 times, which would be fucking unheard of in this division. He would rather sooner, he would probably more likely get hit by a bus knowing what happens at heavyweight. (laughs) then defend the title 10 times. Let's say Francis Ngannou wins 10 more fights, but they never fight each other. And then they both retire and walk away. How big a a shadow does that cast for you? Well, I think the problem that you're going to get into, and probably before too long, is that, okay, you go in there, say you fight Stipe. You fight a kind of over-the-hill version of Stipe, but still, you know, he's still Stipe. It still has some clout in the heavyweight division. Then say you beat Stipe. Then what? Then you're into kind of... Curtis Blades territory, you're getting into, you know, maybe some eventually Tom Aspinall territory, stuff like that. But you're you're going to fight some of these dudes who are hanging around in the heavyweight division, and it's not exactly a deep division. It, yeah. As we've talked about before, there are kind of a couple different versions of it where there's a top three or so, and then there's everybody else. And so... If you're defending that belt pretty regularly and you think you, you got to think John Jones has his eye on breaking Stipe's record for, for consecutive title defenses, too. So he'll probably want to stay at least somewhat active. And then you're going to be looking at him beating up guys where either Francis Ngannou already starts them a while back or they just seem like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel looking for somebody who could step up and take the fight. And we're going to if we get bored of that, what everybody's going to think is. Man, wish we had that Nganu fight. Wish we could make that Nganu fight. What's Francis doing right now? Could we reach out with an offer? Could we maybe get him back in here? And then you got Dana White standing there talking about never, never will he fight again. And it's like, man, you have brought people back into the UFC who did heinous shit. Who did actually bad things with their lives. And you're going to tell us like Francis Nganu... Taking a hardball negotiation stance is the thing that gets him blackballed from the UFC. I don't believe you. Well, the worst thing you can do in the UFC is ask for more money. Uh, but I think isn't Dana White just saying that to to try to hamper Francis Ngannou's bargaining power with other people? Because if Francis Ngannou can't go back to the UFC, then if you are a boxing promoter or Bellator or PFL, you have more leverage. To just be like, well, what else he can do, right? Like if the UFC was still an option, maybe that drives up the price for Ngano. Uh, the UFC record for successful heavyweight title defenses, by the way, since you brought it up, is three. Three. So yep. there you go with that. And you're right. Let's say John Jones blows the doors off Stipe similarly to how he did against Cyril Gaon. Then you get into Curtis Blades and all these other guys. Are those big fights? Are those big money fights? Is John Jones going to be satisfied with that? Is that going to bring in the kind of dollars the UFC should rightly be getting from a John Jones heavyweight title reign? I don't know, man. What you going to do? You going to call Brock? You going to call 48-year-old Brock Lesnar or however old he is to come in there and fight John Jones? I don't know what you do at that point. 
I'm just going to tell you right now, you know who's currently sitting at number five in the UFC heavyweight rankings? Is it tied to Ivasa? It's tied to Ivasa, the prophecy. Don't act like it's unheard of. Like, hey, John Jones fights Stipe midsummer, right? He might want to get one more in for the end of the year. Get himself a little closer to breaking that record just in, in one year. And uh, maybe we're, we're looking around. Sergey Pavlovich available. Uh, he's he's injured. Curtis Blades on vacation. Tied to Ivasa take the fight, though. You call him up. He'll, he'll be drunk at 2 a.m. when you get him on the phone and he'll agree to it. And then who knows, Chad? Who knows? <laughs> Didn't I say that this, this year's futures bet for UFC heavyweight champion was Curtis Blades? Did you? I've, I mean, I've totally forgotten, but it's possible, yeah. Because uh, let's say Jones fights Stipe in July, like they're talking about. Who's next and when? Could be the Razor. Could be Miami Private Detective Curtis Blades. All right, that's gonna do it for round number two. We'll get into Alexa Grasso's big win over Valentina Shevchenko coming up in round three. That starts right now. Well, Ben, Alexa Grasso shocks the world in somewhat dramatic fashion, choking out Valentina Shevchenko. I guess face crank is what we're calling it officially, so not necessarily a choke. But four minutes and 34 seconds into the fourth round, Alexa Grasso dethrones the longtime women's flyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko. I guess in some ways you could make the argument this seemed like a trap fight for Shevchenko from the beginning. Uh, though I don't know how many people actually had Grasso winning. You had some other contenders in this division who were starting to make their their names known, and there was a sense of like, okay, Valentina Shevchenko gets through Alexa Grasso's. Maybe we have a rematch with Tyler Santos. Uh, maybe some of these other contenders, Tatiana Suarez and whoever, start to look a little bit more appealing. But this was one of those fights that as soon as Alexa Grasso started uh, you know, touching Valentina Shevchenko up in the boxing game, you started to kind of get that feeling in your stomach, like, uh-oh, uh, this, this, this ain't going according to plan. And because she's great, Valentina Shevchenko was able to mix it up and get into the wrestling game, have some success there. But the interesting thing is she throws this kick in the fourth round, gives up her back, Grasso jumps on that thing like like nothing, and locks up this choke slash face lock and ends up getting the tap. And Grasso goes on to say, yeah, we worked on that. We worked on that in camp that, you know, she sometimes throws that kick and I could hop on her back from there, which big if true. And (laughs) if it is, man, that's, you know, give that coach a bonus as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it totally works. So even if you're saying that it's maybe, she's overstating the extent to which they had a plan to do that. I mean, it's almost more impressive if she didn't, that if you just went in there and you saw the opportunity and you seized it and you're right that she had some moments in this fight where you could tell like, okay, she, she belongs in there. Uh, she's was struggling a little bit with, uh, Valentina Shevchenko's wrestling and her top control and stuff. But like she, uh, she wasn't completely overwhelmed. She didn't look lost in the moment, even though she did. She came in here, I believe, as the second biggest underdog on the card behind the dude who fought Bo Nickel, 15-1 uh, to favorite. So, like, long, long odds. And I, the thing I was wondering about beforehand was, you know, did we see in, in Valentina Shevchenko's last fight 
the signs that she her dominance was waning either through age or being at the top for a certain amount of time or, or whatever like was this the the first on the downward slope of the mountain for Valentina Shevchenko or was it just a bad night which are bound to happen if you defend the title like seven fucking times in a row or whatever yeah. so seeing her go out in this fight though and seeing you know she looked like she was having to rely a little bit on finding these areas where okay I can exploit one little advantage rather than being the person who would just go out there and dominate people kind of all over and it just seemed like you know she's not quite the force in the division that she used to be but still looked like she might have this one in hand and she's such a smart fighter she 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 fights well to the scorecards and so it seemed like okay she she might be about to get away with another one and to see Alexa Grasso just have one good moment jump on it and not waste it not not let it go at all uh that's impressive to me especially because you know you're watching that choke go on and you're like it's not under the chin you know i don't know if you're going to be able to finish this here time is running out in the round and i don't know if you've seen people post this clip or this image of when the choke is released after valentina shevchenko taps and alexa grasso lets her go and you can see how drastically Valentina Shevchenko's head has changed colors and the place where the forearm of Alexa Grasso was across her jaw is the only part that's pale and it is a stark difference you're like that is a squeeze right there that that is gonna force you to tap whether you want to or not yeah no it was definitely a dramatic moment Valentina Shevchenko jumps on the mic after it's over and does a classic I would have won if I hadn't lost yeah uh, post-fight victory speech I saw a lot of people talking about how classy she was in defeat. And I was like, was she though? Was she? Because she was kind of like, well, you know how it goes. Sometimes you dominate every minute of a fight and then you miss a kick and they jump on your back and choke you out. Uh, I guess that, I mean, I guess that sometimes that's the game. And I was just like, I don't know if I would say you were dominating every facet. You were kind of getting boxed the fuck up early in this fight. Uh, So, yeah, I wasn't sure she quite lived up to the classy... Uh, billing that she got from some people after that interview yeah i mean i'll give her a little bit of license there especially you know in a second language and you're she's not exactly wrong i mean i agree she wouldn't dominate every single second of it but she you know you're right that that is kind of the game you were you you felt like you were doing well and you were winning and then one moment the other person seizes it and, and you lose, I can understand bringing that up a little bit. And it's not like she harped on it. It's not like she was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> you know, she just kind of mentioned it. And I was like, okay, because I, my, my sensors went off. I was like, are we going to get a would have won if we hadn't lost kind of thing here? Um, but I don't think that she went all the way down that path. I'll, I'll give her a little bit of a break there. And also, I wondered when I saw her like right after that fight, like kind of the look on her face and her attitude, I was like, is there a little bit of relief there? Like, you know, you, you were the champion. All these people wanted to beat you. You have to win every single time to them. It's the opportunity of a lifetime each time to you. It's supposed to be another night of work of being Valentina Shevchenko and holding down the title. And then it finally happens. It almost happened last time. This time it does happen. You lose the belt. And I think that there's a natural feeling of a little bit of an exhale there. Like, well, okay, the worst case scenario happened. And now I can deal with the this fear that I had of what life looks like on the other side of that. Yeah, we've heard other champions talk about that after losing their, their belt, that it 
in some ways felt like a relief for them to be able to get back to some semblance of norm normalcy. And we heard George St. Pierre talk a lot about how hard it is to be a long reigning UFC champion. Since you're only fighting the best people out there, you're getting their best effort. Everyone is, is motivated to come in there and defeat you. And so it's just, it's like walking a razor's edge. As he said, Alexa Grasso at this point, only 29 years old, but at the same time is starting to live up, I guess, to some of that hype that we thought she might have when she left Invicta and came over to the UFC. Uh, Alexa Grasso, if you include her time on the Ultimate Fighter Latin America, uh, she has been in the UFC since 2016. Man, I guess she fought at the final. She fought in the final at UFC two six or in 2016. Uh, that is a long-ass time, longer than I thought yeah. she has been in the UFC. She has now won five in a row, capped by this win over Valentina Shevchenko and starts to look a little bit like the person that we thought she could be when she first came over from Invicta. Another interesting point is that the UFC now has three Mexican-born champions for yeah. the first time in its history. In Alexa Grasso, you got Yair Rodriguez, of course, and Brandon Moreno. So that's the first time that has ever happened. We will actually have uh, Rodrigo Del Campo uh, Gonzalez on one of our Patreon shows this week to talk about the history of Mexican fighters in the UFC. But that's been a market the UFC kind of toyed with back in the day when you know they tried to use Cain Velasquez as their uh, flag bearer to break into the Mexican market. Of course, he went down there and got beat by uh, Fabricio Verdum in the Mexico City fight, where it seemed like Verdum, who had actually spent some time in Mexico City, was the fan favorite there. But, you know, I wonder if you open the door now to more expansion in Mexico because some of these fighters from that country are starting to, to win championships. I mean, if not now, then what are you waiting on? You know, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. Um, all right, Ben, let's do, uh, well, do you think we're running this back right away? Are we doing Alexa Grasso versus Valentina Shevchenko the rematch? Yeah. I mean, there's not like a whole lot of other pressing business that seems like it would have to be handled, but then they always, the question is if you run it back and then Valentina Shevchenko just wins the title back, then what? Yeah. You know, then you're one and one. All right, let's do just saying stuff and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, I have once again reached the point where I have no idea what we're scoring in these fights. This seems to happen to me about once every three months. I feel like I arrive at the point where I'm not sure what the what the judges are scoring here. The UFC broadcast team continue, continually seems to not totally know what the scoring criteria are especially joe rogan i gotta say he just doesn't seem like he is hip to the new scoring criteria at all but i understand at this point how it could be confusing are we scoring damage first and foremost i thought we were scoring damage first and foremost because if we're scoring damage doesn't jalen turner beat mateusz gamrot in their fight if we're scoring control yeah, man, give it to, to Gamron. But aren't we supposed to be scoring damage? I'm confused. I feel like I need to have another refresher from Sean Sheehan, our colleague over there from Ireland who is who seems to know everything about the scoring grid. I need to talk to him again because I've once again got to the point where I'm like, whoa, what are we even scoring here? I have no idea. I'm just saying. I have no idea. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Did you, you know, uh, Jalen Turner's corner seemed to think he was down in that fight, and we got a great corner man moment when he went in there. I think between rounds two and three, and the corner man told him, "Time to show everybody why you're here." Yeah, I think you no, ought to that stick that one, one in your back pocket for for your your own corner man tools because that's the one I can see will. you using. 
I definitely will. This split decision in fairness, I, I feel like, the, is there a name for this? We got a bingo in this thing? Because this is one of those ones where you roll in, one judge has it 29-28 for Gamrot, the other judge has it 29-28 for Turner, and then your outlier has it 30-27 for Gamrot. So got a bingo there, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Chad, this week for my Just Saying stuff, I would like to speak directly to a former coworker of ours. Okay, interesting. I refer now, of course, to uh, a guy we worked with at The Athletic, who was my editor for a while at The Athletic, Greg Rosenstein. Okay. Now, yeah, I remember Greg. Your man Greg Rosenstein got on Twitter and was so confident that Valentina Shevchenko was going to win this fight. He tweeted, quote, if Valentina Shevchenko loses at UFC 285, I'll get a handgun tattoo on my hip. Oh, boy. Why do you do that? You don't do that, Greg. You don't do that. Well, Chad, Valentina Shevchenko, as you know, did in fact lose. She did. She did lose. And I'm just saying, Greg, as a community, we cannot allow you to forget this. We cannot allow you to just slip on by on this one, my man. John Anik went and got the 209 tattoo. Greg Rosenstein going to have to go get the Valentina Shevchenko gun tattoo on his hip. Greg, I know you're thinking, it'll die down. These guys will forget about it. You know, there are people who make jokes about it. Awfulannouncing.com even wrote a story just about it. But I don't have to actually go and get the tattoo. I was just being a silly little guy on the internet. People understand that, you know, and uh, they'll let it go. I'm going to tell you right now, Greg, the Co-Main Event Podcast is not going to let it go. <laughs> not now. Not tomorrow. Not a week from now. Not ever. Greg, you're going to have to get the tattoo. I'm oh, just boy. saying. Wow. I'm just saying. Was Greg unfamiliar with the, the MMA gods? Was he, did is he not? Does he? Because it seems like that you just tempted them. If yeah. you go tweeting some, say it, you could say it to yourself. Mm -hmm. You could say it to, to like one friend who you know is going to keep it close. Don't put it on the internet. Don't put that on the internet, you man. Know, I believe that's what the ancient Greeks would have called the old hubris. <laughs> well, he's going to have to do it. He's going to have to get the tattoo. We have precedent. Man of, of honor, John Anik, has already done it. Yeah, exactly. And see, that's the thing. John Anik proved himself a man of honor. Now, I know Greg. I know Greg to be a man of honor. So it's not a question of if. It's just a question of when. And to help us all stay abreast of that whole conversation, I will make it my personal mission that every day when I wake up, I will get on Twitter and it will be a question that we ask until the answer is yes. And the question is, did Greg get the gun tattoo yet? Greg's yeah. going to have to produce evidence, compelling evidence, mind you, airtight evidence of the gun tattoo. Uh, otherwise, Greg, we're just going to keep asking every day. Yeah, we are. Every we are. day. Just saying. Just saying. All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks to everybody for tuning in for our $20 patrons. We're going to get into after hours right now. For the rest of you, sign up for the team. Go to patreon.com slash co-main event and support us over there. We got co content all week. You can get into the live chat for as little as $1 a month, which is the best damn deal in all of mixed martial arts. Barely even money. If you're not doing that, we'll talk to you next week for the proper. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We are done. We are through. We are out. Now, Ben, to return to our conversation about Shavkat Rachmanov, that boy good. 
you know who else is good and happens to be in that division is Kamzat Shemayev. Yeah. Now you had Shavkat That Boy Good Rachmanov come out this past weekend after his win and say, you know what? I was thinking about slow playing this thing, but you can go ahead and give me that title shot right now. Is that what we want to see? Do we want to see Shavkat Rachmanov uh, fast-tracked against the winner of this Kamaru Usman-Leon Edwards rematch that we've got coming up? Or, or 